A while back, Dick Barry and I agreed that what really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. Call me shallow. It's the fucking truth. The Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast is an industry plant. Welcome to episode 39 of the Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast. I am your host, Sock Jig. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well, at Sock Jig. So this is kind of a different episode. This episode is all about how and why we like what we like when it comes to not just our taste in sneakers, but our taste in everything. I read this book recently called So You May Like, Taste in an Age of Endless Choice by Tom Vanderbilt, and I kind of adapted it to sneakers for this episode. Full info will be in the description of this podcast episode about that book. I give a full intro to the topic coming up a little bit, but I wanted to say this episode took me a long time to put together. First, I had to read a book. Have you ever tried reading a book? It takes forever. And a scientific one at that. I wrote notes while I was reading it, and I basically collected them all together, made an outline, and I adapted things that apply to sneakers. So it's a definitive look into the world of sneaker taste. In a way, it sort of becomes kind of a, a sneaker podcast episode about everything ever said on any sneaker podcast ever. You know, the one episode to rule them all. So if you're listening to the episode and you think, hey, this is not for me and decide to tap out, that's all right. The next podcast will go back to our regular scheduled programming. Honestly, I'm at the point where I spent so many hours with this episode that there were times where I thought about scrapping the whole thing myself, but we carry on. And really, I might be the only one who would create a sneaker podcast episode like this, so that's why I did. So enjoy. If not, skip to my outro message. Thank you. You're hungry, get yourself something to eat, and if you're dirty, then go take a bath, must up the line. No, cause sometimes I don't rhyme. Help yourself to a cracker. But it's better cheddar cheese, have a neck bone. You don't have to say please eat what the fuck you like. Yo, smell how you like. Come on, everybody do what you like. In a recent pod, I, I kind of mentioned that there's a, something I want to talk about a little bit more, and that's what this the main topic of this podcast is. In that podcast, I had this quote by Frederick Nietzsche saying, there's no disputing over taste, but all of life is a dispute over taste. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about those Nina Chanel Abney 2 drop that recently came out. And the topic on them was why don't people like them? Why don't they resell? Why you actually should like them because of the artist in question. There was this quote on the front page of Essence to one of their stories. The quote was in the graphic and it said, you can't ask fashion not to be primarily visual. The person who said it, her name is Francesa Granada. And it's true, in fashion, the visual will always win because it's not even worth considering if it doesn't look good. And the same thing applies to sneakers. When we think of what's a good or worthy sneaker, say worthy of being sneaker of the year or something, we think of aesthetics, how good it looks. It should be always number one. The brand, of course, the collaborator and the story of the shoe itself are always uh, up there. The quality, sometimes for some people, it doesn't matter. For some people, it does. Same with comfort. And we've seen that just how attainable the shoe is can also affect how you think about it, how much stock there was, how the release rollout went, the execution of it as well. You saw with shipping experiences and customer service and things like that, the follow through with it. 
the Ama Manier 3, that's considered a Hall of Fame drop because everything went so well. They had raffles, they had in-store, they had online, they had covered everything. And Union was considered in that realm of Hall of Fame as well. But then with these recent releases, there's been people who've had tons of shipping woes and no delivery and bad customer service. And that's affected what they think of Union and probably what they think of that shoe as well. There's this fable about sour grapes, and it's about a fox who's who's basically unable to reach some grapes in, that he clearly wants, and because he can't reach them, he basically calls them sour grapes. That's where the term comes from. Instead of moving on to his next preferred food choice, he downgrades those grapes. He says that they are sour. They're not worthy of eating because they're bad, even though he's still hungry and he still wants those grapes. This fox could have enjoyed the grapes, but he also could have liked being the only one who could reach those grapes and being able to enjoy them. This happens in sneakers all the time. People are adaptable and their sneaker taste is adaptable because of what's available. In this case, the choice or the lack of choice creates the preference. And we see this with sneakers every day. People saying sneakers are bad because I can't get them. That The sneakers are done because of that. So... That's what I wanted to look into. I wanted to look into kind of the psychology and how people think about this kind of stuff. Not just what makes a sneaker good, but our tastes and preferences for sneakers. And, you know, what we spend all our time talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. I didn't want to talk about, you know, consumer trends or fashion trends or hype or resell, but it's impossible to ignore and they all kind of get woven in. So at the end of the day, it's all about taste and your preferences. So I went to do some research on this stuff, but a lot of it was just hard to read, research paper kind of stuff. Not exactly what I had in mind. But then I did find a book. It's called You May Also Like Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. It's by Tom Vanderbilt. And that's what this basically podcast is based on. It's based on that book. I took notes as I read this book. I chopped and screwed it and basically applied it to sneakers. A lot of what he talks about in the book is about food and music and I've always made music comparisons on this podcast, so in my mind, some of it applied to sneakers, some of it didn't. So most of this is adapted from that book and what we talk about when it comes to taste. Why do we like what we like? How do we know if something is good? What do we want? Do we want new stuff or do we want old stuff? How do we set ourselves apart when it comes to sneakers? How are we influenced not only by our peers, but by influencers and experts? And overall, you know, how do our tastes change over time? So that's what this episode is about. Let's go. Okay, how I wanted to start was talking about, you know, why do we like what we like? Not only the why, but the how. Think of kids and their favorite, like, colors or numbers. It's kind of a kid question anyway. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite number? A kid will usually say blue or pink. They might say the number seven is their favorite. But as an adult, you know, think back, how many blue kicks do you have? Do you only buy Jordan 7s? No, not really. So it doesn't always carry over to fashion and sneakers. A bright blue is not going to be as versatile as black or white. And we saw this argument with women's colorways as well and how brands are doing a lot of shrink it and pink it. There's a reason why little girls' bikes are pink and adult women's ones are not pink. Anyways, when it comes to color, we like the color of things we like the most. The more you see a color, the more it's associated with a positive experience. This is why we don't want sneakers to be turd brown. In the book, they talk about a study about how little infants actually love the color dark yellow from their tests. 
but adults don't because that dark yellow is often associated with turds. But a kid has not had to clean up turd, so they don't know. They don't haven't experienced it before. A better example might be like your university colors, your your college colors. If you're a Duke fan, you're not gonna be necessarily a fan of UNC colorways. There's a line in the book. It says a favorite color is like a chromatic record of everything that has ever made you feel good. Another thing is your environment or surroundings and how that can affect not only your choice you're going to make or your overall preferences. Think of food and going to an Italian restaurant and you look at the wall and it's got pictures of the Mediterranean and it looks like it could be in Rome. The food in that restaurant that looks like an authentic Italian place is probably going to taste better than the exact same food in a food court. Just like drinking expensive wine from a styrofoam cup is going to taste a little bit different than drinking it from a wine tasting event on a vineyard somewhere. So when it comes to decor, I was thinking about sneaker retail shops and the difference between retail and consignment. And really, when it comes to retail, they do not really need to go all out when it comes to how a store looks. It has to look good, but they do not need to go over and above because really what's on the wall? It's not their best product. Those usually fly. It's usually their bricks. The hype shoes don't even make it on the wall. If you go to a store opening and some Chicago ones are releasing, they're going to bring it up from the back. It's not going to be on the wall. Back in the day, someone might do an in-display window. But even these days with how things are and break-ins and stuff like that, I don't even think stores are doing that. They're not even storing the hype product at the location anymore. But there's demands from Nike as well. Like a store has to look good. It has to represent them as a brand as well too it just can't be a hole in the wall compare that to consignment stores where you see innovation in decor and sneakers is really at the consignment stores think of the urban necessities and the new flight club in la and stadium goods and stuff in new york as well too they look great they look awesome when sneaker shopping shows up there because in those environments someone is making a non-retail decision And every factor in the presentation plays a part. If it was like a dumpy consignment shop that's in the mall, hey, maybe I can haggle with this guy. But if it's urban necessities in Las Vegas and it's got a marble floor, the customer's going to feel, hey, I'm a rich guy. I can afford this. So decor, surroundings, it matters a lot more these days in consignment shops than it does in retail. But those are kind of secondary. Really, the key to liking anything is that you've made a choice. In the book, they say that liking is about anticipation and memory. And we saw that with color. It's about the memory of everything in the past that has made you feel good. And when you're looking at a shoe, you're not necessarily thinking about those memories. And anticipation, that's what the game is right now. We're all looking forward to those Chicago ones. We're looking forward to the Fire Red 3s coming out. Because with those shoes, it's looking back to the memory of the first time we had Fire Red 3s. But for people who are like, you know, 18 or just new into the game, it's going to be a new experience. But things we like have to be sustainable. Obviously, there's a history and we know Jordan 3s look good and they're not super comfortable on feet, but they're comfortable enough. There was a product by uh, Pepsi at one time called Crystal Pepsi. You've probably seen jokes and stuff about it. They did a big marketing campaign. It was supposed to be a clear version of Pepsi and it seemed like it's going to be cool and fresh. And it basically flopped. And why it flopped is maybe somebody bought it once and then never again. Because it did not seem like a thing that you would buy over and over again. It was a novelty of just trying it one time and that's it. 
In sneakers, a comparison might be a clear shoes, the clear toe box thing. We see the shoes with the clear toe. We go, hey, that's cool. Let's try those. And then we actually wear it and experience it and be like, huh, this is actually a pain. My feet are sweating. I got to match socks with it. I don't want all my shoes to be clear. In a way, clear shoes are just like Crystal Pepsi. So we like to learn things. We keep a collection of everything we've ever liked in our lives. And then when you do like something and you do buy that sneaker, you defend that choice. Because, you know, we don't want to look back and think of what else should I have gotten instead. This is more a thing with food. When you're in a restaurant and you pick something on the menu, you close the menu and you don't look at it again. You don't often look back at it and be like, oh shit, I should have ordered that. I should have ordered this instead of what I got. And in sneakers, obviously we see sneakers buyer's remorse all the time. What was I thinking? Sometimes we convince ourselves, hey, I can just sell it later and get my money back. And that's not exactly the case now with the way resale is. But overall, we want to avoid this kind of perpetual buyer's remorse, always feeling shitty about what we bought. Another thing you'll see is when you make a choice, you think other people would also have made this choice. Obviously, if I think this way, then everyone will or should. And this is actually called the false consensus effect, where people just assume that their personalities and characteristics and beliefs are widespread throughout everyone in the population. And it's, it's obviously not true. We see it in both likes and dislikes. I like New Balance, why can't others see what's great about them? Or Nike sucks and why can't people see that Nike's just selling you the shoes that you couldn't get when you were in high school? There was a, a viral tweet that basically said that. But a common theme in this book is we learn to like, liking is learning. I was thinking about uh, gateway sneakers, you know, there's the term gateway drugs, but in terms of gateway sneakers, what got you into sneakers? Often it's the same story, like uh, older brother or Michael Jordan. For the newer generation, it might have been Kanye West that got him into sneakers, the Zebra 350s or something like that. Or, you know, it might be resale. Uh, a friend of yours is reselling sneakers and you saw money, so that's how they got into it. Another thing I was thinking about was acquired taste, because acquired taste is something that takes a while to get used to, to get to like. Very few people like coffee or beer at first, but those aren't exactly acquired taste, just because they're so, I don't know, popular. But there's definitely a switch from when you first try it, you're like, what the hell is this? This is shit. But then it switches from disliking something to liking something. Those things are a shock to the system. You're introduced to this whole new world. When you when you drink that first coffee or you drink that first beer, it's just this explosion that you just never experienced before. In food, acquired taste could be, say, some stinky cheese. No one just starts with stinky cheese. You have to build up to it. Just like no one just starts being a death metal fan. You gotta listen to Metallica first and then Slayer. In sneakers, there's very little shock to the system. There's very little disruption, something brand new that comes out. Foam runners might be one of the best recent example of taking something like footwear and taking it in a new direction. But even that, there were things like Crocs and stuff before it. And not everyone likes foam runners. And just think about ugly shoes. Are ugly shoes an acquired taste? Are people just liking because others do not like them? I'll get to that kind of social aspects uh, stuff a little bit later too. In terms of wild shoes, Nike CDG or these Martine Rose collabs that are basically just wild and look like they're made for Dover Street Market employees, they know what they're doing. They're going for that shock to the system within footwear, within what they can do within that collaboration. And they're going for those, you know, Dover Street Market employees, the people who are willing to accept and try ugly shoes. I've said this on Twitter before. 
I like ugly shoes. I've always talked about the CDG Presto tents that I really like. But before that, I liked Presto, so it was easy to like those for me. I like when people try. I like when people are out there trying this new stuff. Like, even Yeezys with the 450, those were out there when they first came out. And if they fail, I might laugh at it. Like, these Kerwin Frost shoes. I, I really have no idea who he is or what YouTube show he does. And his shoes are out there, but I can tell he's trying to be campy and out there on purpose. He has a point of view and he makes you feel something. That feeling might be revolt. And, you know, I might think the shoe is a failure, but someone else is like, this is perfect for me. Especially when that person might know who Kerwin Frost is and whatever YouTube show he does. Whereas I'm the total opposite. I don't know. So still respect it, even though, you know, they suck. So that's the other key to liking things. The most important things are exposure and frequency. What are you exposed to? What do you like? What do you watch? It's not as much as exposure to things as it is exposure to people. People influence our liking much more than the actual product itself. Like I said, your brother or your friend got you into sneakers or Michael Jordan himself watching him play. The book talks about this. It's called The Mere Exposure Effect. And it basically says, just mere repeated exposure to something is enough to improve your attitude towards it. But there can also be a turning point where if you see it too much, then it's overexposed. Think of panda dunks. Think of things that you'd say you didn't like in the first place. For people who never liked New Balance, and now they're seeing New Balance everywhere, they're like, this sucks. Why am I seeing this everywhere? So that's why I said exposure and frequency. How often you see things matters a lot. But there's always these contradictions when it comes to liking things. If you like something a lot, do you choose it more often? Most of the time, but not always. Say your favorite shoe is a Jordan 1. Do you only wear Jordan 1s? On Twitter, there's Mr. Unloved Ones, and he famously only wears Jordan 1s because he's got a strict rule about it. But he has said on his Twitter that he likes a lot of shoes as well. By his rules, he sticks to his most favorite, which are Jordan 1s. But overall, for most people, we are not that extreme. We do start to pick other things as a way to protect the things that we do love. You know what I mean by that? Sneakerheads don't wear the same sneaker every day for months and months. We often have a rotation. And we get just used to having too much choice and too much variety, even in our rotation. In the book, they talk about how people will tend to consume things till the point where they no longer enjoy them. But people can basically recover from that by simply recalling the variety of alternate things that they have consumed in the past. Think of all the shoes that you've caught this year. But they call it variety amnesia in that people do not do that recall spontaneously. Someone can say it in a tweet and they might recall it. Well, you might say, I haven't bought anything forever. There hasn't been any good shoes that come out. Meanwhile, you may have already bought like five or six shoes in the last couple of months. There were awesome shoes that came out in January and February, but you're not actively thinking about them. But if you stop to think about what you did buy and what you did like in those previous months, you will appreciate them instead of always thinking that nothing good is ever happening right now. You will appreciate the variety that you've had instead of having an amnesia to it. In the book, the author visits this research institute by the army that creates these meals ready to eat. They obviously want to make things that soldiers would enjoy and tolerate for longer in the field or wherever harsh environment they are. And what they found was that the more bland the food was, the less the soldiers got tired of it. So say they had something, you know, uh, spicy or, or interesting or whatever it is. If they had that over and over, people got tired of it really quickly. 
But if they had bland food, like mashed potatoes or something, the soldiers could tolerate those meals for much longer. And that's because bland food fades from your memory quicker. So the less likely you'll grow tired of it. Why I bring this up is it kind of explains why certain bland sneakers are so successful for not only sneakerheads, but non-sneakerheads. Think of Chuck Taylor, Stan Smith, Superstars, Air Force Ones. Those are all classics, and a white version of those shoes are often the most popular. They're bland, but because they're bland, we're less likely to grow tired of them. So exposure and frequency plays a big part, and we'll also see that, you know, obviously it pays a big part in nostalgia and how retro release products are made in sneakers as well. Another important part is knowledge and how much you know about the item itself. Before you can like something, you got to have some knowledge about it. Who made this sneaker? What brand is it? What is it for? Is it for running or is it casual? Is it for fashion? Think of those Nina Chanel, Abney Jordan 2s that kind of flopped. Obviously, people either like or dislike the Jordan 2. You know, the Jordan 2 silhouette aside, were people really well aware of Nina Chanel Abney as an artist? Obviously not widely, I don't think. And that could have played a part in why there was not that much interest in them. But when it comes to knowledge and things we like, we have two options of what we can do. And I'll describe them as going wide or going deep. Going wide means we can like a wide variety of things, or we can go deep on liking one thing a lot. Really just think about anything you like, like music as well too. Either you like a lot of artists, you like a lot of genres, and you listen to a lot of genres, or you only like one thing. I know a lot of metalheads that basically only listen to metal. And the same thing happens with anything you like. Movies as well, and sneakers too. I myself like a lot of sneakers. I'll wear Asics, New Balance, Jordans, Nikes, Reeboks, Adidas, all that kind of stuff. Whereas I know people who are like, fuck all that. I'm not wearing New Balance. I'm not wearing some Reebok shit. I'm wearing fresh Jordans and fresh Nikes. And that's the difference what I'm talking about here. Going wide versus going deep on something. You can go either horizontal or vertical when it comes to liking things. And it could end up becoming this kind of dilemma or, you know, is the grass greener on the other side? If I only like New Balance sneakers, would I gain more insight and value into liking other sneakers? And the same with people who like a variety of stuff. If you have a ton of shoes and you only wear one and move on to something else and something else, would you gain more insight and value and respect for something if you went deep and knowledge on a single thing instead of a ton of things? So everyone has the option of what they're going to do. They're going to go wide on something or go deep on something. And the time of your life when you do have the time to like this kind of stuff and go deep on things is really what I'm calling the formative years. And that could be early teens to college. That's when you have the most time and you don't have other stresses in your life. Chuck Klosterman once said that you can tell how old someone is by just asking what's their favorite album. They will often list an album that was the best album of the year, the year they graduated college. So if someone says, my favorite album is Pearl Jam, they probably graduated in 1992 or 1991, which means they're probably, you know, 50 years old. In music, your formative years are that year you probably graduated university or college. In sports, often your formative years are when you're eight years old, because every eight-year-old is a front-runner. If you ever meet someone who's a fan of the San Francisco 49ers, for example, and they don't live in San Francisco, you can probably guess their age because they were eight years old when that team won the Super Bowl. And that was, you know, late 80s with Joe Montana. So that means they're probably born in 1980. 
that means they're 42 years old. And really, the older you get, you don't even have time to maintain the things that you like or even maintain the things that you dislike. So you end up, you know, recalling the things that you liked in the past. And of course, what's going to happen is you're going to remember the things that you liked in your formative years. And this has been studied. There's a thing called the reminiscence bump where older adults over 40 or so can often recall more memories of adolescence and early adulthood than they do of 30 to 35. Think of a chart where at the bottom is your age and the vertical part is the number of memories you remember. No one remembers that much from zero to five. And the chart starts going up, 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 and it peaks at basically about 20. Then it starts going down all the way to 30, 32 or whatever. And then, you know, when you're older over 40, because of the, the recent five, 10 years are very recent, your number of memories starts going up again. This is because the older you get when you're 32 or 33, you're thinking about bills, you're thinking about rent, you're thinking about your career, wife, children, all that kind of stuff. And what happens is we tend to only remember the things that were good in our history because of this, because that's just how you know human memory works. Who's got time to remember all the bad things? Who even wants to remember all the bad shit? When it comes to sneakers, we remember Nike for making Air Max 1, Air Max 90, Air Max 95, the Jordan 1s, of course, and all the Jordans. But think of everything in between. Most of those are forgotten. For every good shoe, there's a whole bunch of Nike Strategy Low, Nike Airbound, Nike Air Sonic Flight Mid. And of course, there's going to be people that love those shoes and they're going to ask for them to come back. And they will. And sometimes they flop. Sometimes they don't fit the current times. And of course, Nike is trying to decide what in our archives does fit the current times. They brought back these air adjust forces with ambush. And I said previously on a podcast, I think it was a mistake bringing those back and targeting them for women when it's really the, you know, the size 13 big guys, the East Bay catalog guys who want those shoes. So target it for them. But that's just my opinion. They're the product managers on that. They can decide what they want to do. But Nike always has the tried and true. They can always go back to their Air Max 1s, Air Max 90, because they know we want to remember the good stuff. This reminiscence bump, the number of memories you have and how it starts going down from 20 to you know 35 or so, this bump also explains how brands look at products and what to bring back and at what time, who our current buyers are and how old are they, what do they have memories for. That's why I think that Turtle Dove was not exactly a great time to bring it back now. It just didn't feel like a 2022 shoe. There's obviously people who remember the shoe seven years ago and didn't get it back then and are thankful to have it right now. But were they actively thinking about this shoe right now before this re-release was announced? Maybe not. Maybe they would have had more fondness for it five years from now. But another thing about remembering the good and not the bad is we see in sneakers all the time of it was better back in my day. It was better back in my day. It's exactly the same. Everyone remembers the good, not the bad. Sneakers haven't changed much. It's still, like I said, Air Max 1s, Air Max 90s, Jordan 1s. But sneaker culture obviously has. Stuff is not sitting on the wall anymore. And people are saying, hey, that sneaker should be sitting on the wall. Meanwhile, the store that has the sneaker on the wall would be worrying that they're not moving product. Nike would be looking at it, that why aren't you moving good product? It's never going back to that. So obviously one person might say it was better back then, but that retailer is going to say it was shitty back then. I like it much more now that things are moving. And I've talked about some of this kind of stuff before. People do not think about how much easier it is to buy something 
from StockX or GOAT than it was to send someone on eBay a money order. We see tweets all the time of the sneaker game is dead. Ebro, old man Ebro had that tweet out. I think the tweet just said the sneaker game is done. Really, I don't even know what it means because it could mean different things from who's saying it. You know, if a reseller says it, the sneaker game is dead, he's saying I can't resell anything anymore. I can't make money off it. If a regular sneakerhead is saying it, he's saying either, you know, I can't get the sneakers themselves or the sneakers are too available that they don't resell, that they're not coveted. So the fun, the game of it is dead now. Meanwhile, in this day and age, things are easier to get than ever. The Jordan 1 yellow toes that are coming out, they haven't even released yet, and they're basically $30 over retail. When a few years ago, when the last ads came out, they might have been $400 right now. So in a way, for that person who wants a good sneaker like the Jordan 1 yellow toe, it should be the golden age. But instead, a person like that might be saying the sneaker game is dead because there's no thrill of the hunt. There's no rush of getting it. It's not exclusive. Whatever it is. And why I bring this up is this reminiscence bump that I talk about when you have interest high in your 20s and then it tails down. All that stuff is overlapping. Some people are coming out of it and they're like, sneakers are dead because I don't have time for it. Meanwhile, someone else could be 22 and is only now getting a chance to get Chicago ones for the first time. So some people are coming into their formative years and other people are getting out of their formative years and can't handle it. I just think it's sad when people make these grand proclamations that uh, sneakers are dead and fail to see their own personal history, fail to see that they are easing out of things, and they're just not easing out of things gracefully. Meanwhile, the younger generation is like, who gives a shit what you have to say? How do we know what we like? How do we know if something is good? Most of the time, we know right away when we see something. In the book, they say that we often, in the first 50 milliseconds, know if we like something. The book says the brain is basically a pattern matching engine primed for symmetry. So when we see those things, we see a pattern that we've seen before, we see symmetry, we are going to like it. But you can also kind of capture attention by violating those rules, by putting something out there that is wild, like the foam runners when they first came out. One term we'll see often is the term, uh, it's growing on me, it's growing on you. And really, things only grow on you from exposure to people. For sneakers, it's seeing it on feet on people. But it also depends on how honest you are. Something might grow on you just because you thought it would be a brick, but it's not, and the resale price is high. So now that you've seen that the market has decided that they like this shoe, then you've come around to it. But really, it's the same thing. It's exposure to people. It's people creating that demand for something. There can also be things that were from the archives that basically found new life. You know, think of Teddy Santis bringing back the New Balance 550. But also think about, like I said, about Nike bringing back the Kukini and like Tailwind and stuff like that. They bring them back, but it kind of flops because it's not exactly vibing with the times right now. Whereas the New Balance 550 totally is. On the show Stranger Things on Netflix, you'll hear that song, Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. And that song, you know, re-debuted on the charts and... People realize how good that song is and how they were exposed to it through the show. But the main reason is because the song is good and it also fits with the current time. You think of like uh, Billie Eilish and women's music and what kind of the vibe is out there. That song from the 80s totally fit in with 2022 music. 
So can something be good just because it gets a lot of exposure? Not always. Jay Leno was number one, but he's kind of forgotten about now. He's not as culturally important as Johnny Carson or David Letterman. In art world, there's a guy named Thomas Kincaid that makes these kind of kitschy paintings. And he sells a ton of them, but he's not thought of as like a serious artist. Because they don't look like museum paintings. They look like kitschy art. It's like the art version of empty calories, empty calorie content. Just like Daniel Arsham. But back to sneakers, think of the Fila Disruptor. That shoe was everywhere. It was exposed to everyone for a long time, for like a year and a half or so. Is that shoe good because everyone wore it? No, that shoe sucked. So it's not just about exposure. It's not exactly about what you like, but more about how you like. Like I said, when it comes to aesthetics, you can like bad or ugly shoes, but most people just like the stuff that they're used to. They might like it because it's bland. They might like it because of Michael Jordan, whatever it is. And that's, you know, the other part, the story, the collaborator, who made it, whatever brand you got a connection with. Like I said in the intro, you might like things because of quality and comfort, and those things are higher on the list of priorities for you than it is for someone else. All that order is not really important. It's not really important how you feel. It's more important that you feel it all. It's a shoe that makes you want to wear it again. I mentioned that when I came to Kerwin Frost. The people who like it feel something when they see Kerwin Frost shoes. Because they like him, they see a show, they're exposed to him, all that kind of stuff. On Twitter, I made this worst of the year list. And when I make that list, I always make this disclaimer that only shoes that were trying to be something are considered for worst of the shoes of the year. You know, like this Jound Reebok NPC, I think it's one of the worst shoes of the year. Because it's a Jound, it was trying to be something. I think they thought that the the Jound name would work on any garbage from the past, and it clearly didn't. There might be a lot of shoes that are worse than that. There might be shoes that are more boring than that, but those shoes aren't trying to be anything. If something is so boring, it's not even worth noting or remembering. We don't think about it because we don't feel anything for those shoes. When I say it's not important how you feel, it's more important that you feel it all. It probably explains why people like hate following or hate watching shows or hate watching YouTube reviews. You see this on Twitter a lot. Some people just collect and talk about only the things that they dislike about sneakers and what's going on because it makes them feel something. Either that's just how they are and, you know, the older they're getting, they find it easier to maintain that list of stuff that they dislike than what they do like. Another thing I was thinking about when it comes to sneakers and liking or disliking is guilty pleasures. When you have a guilty pleasure, what exactly is causing the guilt? Is it the pleasure that you have itself, or is it because you're not feeling any guilt and you should be? Either way, you're kind of giving yourself permission to like something that you probably shouldn't. And in sneakers, there's not that many sneaker guilty pleasures. Most of the time, it's like, who gives a shit? Someone might say those sketchers are fire. Will they actually go through and wear them for a sneakerhead? Probably not. For a non-sneakerhead who just went to the mall, they probably will. The one I could think about was the Nike Air Monarch. If you're 19 years old, you probably don't like those if you're a sneakerhead. And I've seen people do this thing where I'm going to wear Monarchs to SneakerCon and things like that, where you're ironically liking them. And this is where all that Normcore, Gorpcore shit comes from. REM said it best when they said, irony is the shackles of youth. So when we talk about guilty pleasures, we obviously care what people think. Things that you have rep who you are socially. The more money people have, the more important it is to signify who you are socially. I got money, so I wear expensive shoes. I drive an expensive car. That's never changed. 
the sneaker game has always been this way. It's always been about looking fresh in the streets. It's always been about what you can get, what others could not get. And when it comes to taste disputes, when arguing with someone about a sneaker or music or whatever it is, it ends up you're more oftentimes arguing with someone who is closer to you are socially than someone who is totally on the opposite side. For example, what's the best Little Wayne mixtape? Is it Dedication 2 or is it The Drought 3? You really have to have this argument with someone who's already listened to the Lil Wayne mixtapes, who's already of a certain age when those were a big thing. Same with sneakers. Like, who else but sneakerheads can argue about what are the best Air Force Ones or the best Air Jordan Ones? You have to be aware of all the top 10 in those categories and then evaluate and judge and argue about the the rankings within. And this is where we'll see disputes about if a shoe is overrated or underrated. Sometimes those are just arguments about if a sneaker should resell for more than it does or it resells more than it should. So just think about that next time you're arguing with someone on Twitter about something pointless about sneakers that you two are actually very close socially and probably could be friends if one of you didn't have a shitty sneaker opinion. Another important aspect about things that we like is measuring what we want that is new versus what is familiar. We don't just like what we like and that's it forever and nothing ever changes. We of course want things that are familiar. We like Jordans, we like the ones that we're used to, we like the stuff that we've been exposed to. Even if say you only like Jordans and you only want to buy Nikes, within Jordan and Nike, you still want what's new. You still want shattered backboards to come out. You want a new story within what's familiar. In food, there's this thing called the omnivore's dilemma, meaning that we can eat anything. We can try any edible plant out there, any fruit from anywhere in the world, any wild animal that we wanted to, but we don't because even though we have this desire to try new things, we mostly stick to what's familiar. We're not out there trying an ostrich burger or trying alligator meat because we stick to what's familiar. We stick to chicken breast from the supermarket because that saves us time, energy, and money. Same thing in sneakers. You can have the sneakers dilemma. There's more sneakers out there than we can ever buy or wear in a lifetime. So instead of trying to buy every single one going horizontal, as I said, we stick to what's familiar. We fall back to exposure because this saves time, energy, and money. The same thing doesn't apply to t-shirts. I will try a t-shirt from anyone. And that's also why it's so hard to establish a new brand out there for sneakers because we're going to stick to what's familiar. Am I going to try some new sneaker brand that I got an Instagram ad for? No. So really, we have another opposition here. We want something new, but we also want something familiar. We crave newness. We crave novelty in fashion sneakers. Every week, we're wondering about what's new, what's dropping this week. What is Z sneakerheads going to tell us? What Jordans have been pushed back? Which ones are leaking? We want to know what's new as long as it's familiar. And that's why there's this push-pull between the two. When you're looking for a sneaker, are you looking for a retro of a shoe that you already have, a shoe that you already know in a new colorway, or some new silhouette? Really, for new sneakers, new silhouettes, it's actually a new experience. It might actually bring you more pleasure than something that you have already experienced before. And the science in this book kind of backs it up. It says that if you're out there in the quest to create new memories, you're better off listening to new music, try new restaurants, try new sneakers, new silhouettes. You remember the newness of Ultra Boost and how that created waves? 
it was new. It was novel. It was something that totally changed sneakers for, you know, a year and a half, two years, whatever it was. Compared to your favorite retro, it's something you've had before. And most of the time, it's just like I said, a new colorway. It's Malibu Stacy now with new hat. In that case, you're not always just creating new memories. You're re-experiencing previous memories just now with a new hat, now with a new colorway. But back to the new stuff and new silhouettes. Sneaker brands, they recognize this. They know this with new silhouettes. If a new silhouette is too familiar, it looks too much like something from the past, that's not going to work out because then it's like, why are you just slightly tweaking something that we're already used to? If you create something that's too futuristic, too out there, then it's like, do I really want to put that on my feet? And that's why brands will often do something in the middle, somewhere in between, something that's new but familiar. That is a sweet spot for them, fresh but consistent. Right now, if you go to the Nike site and you check new arrivals, there'll be a ton of sneakers there that are just remixes of old sneakers. There's this Air Max Flyknit Racer, which is basically the Flyknit Racer Upper, which has basically been vaulted for the last couple of years. And it's got a modern Air Max sole. The New Balance 9060, that was basically a mashup of, I think, the 860 and some 900 shoe, and that's how they got 9060. And when sneaker brands do this, what they're doing is they're following this industrial design principle called the Maya principle, M-A-Y-A. It's coined by this industrial designer, Raymond Lowy, who's best known for designing the Coca-Cola bottle and a whole bunch of other stuff. And Maya, in this case, stands for most advanced yet acceptable. His point was, we want to design for the future, but balance it with your user's current present. So on one hand, you have the tried and true, the well-known, and on the other hand, you have new and innovative. Think of a brand new car. Say you want to design some sort of futuristic new car. Do you want it to look like a spaceship that's totally out there, totally different than what's on the market? Or would you make it look like a Tesla? Which basically follows this principle. It's the most advanced, yet it is acceptable because it still looks like a car at the end of the day. Basically, the point of this principle is if you don't find that right balance, then users won't embrace, nor will they buy your products. And products that do this get the most attention, get the most likes, get the most recall and recognition. That's that pattern matching your brain does where you like something in the first 50 milliseconds. And if you hit that sweet spot, then buyers have the lowest resistance to buying. This leads to another opposition we see all the time, another push and pull, where we want to be unique and like unique things, but also like things that are familiar and well-known to others. A recent example of this, when I, I talked about going on vacation and wanting to take only heat sneakers, I was like, I'm not going to take some New Balance. No one's going to know about these Paperboy New Balance. So I took off-white Prestos and Mars Yard. That's one example, but think of the kicks you'd wear to the mailbox. It's usually whatever's by the door. You're not really thinking about that. Compared to the kicks you'd wear to SneakerCon, most of the time people want to wear their best heat, but as I mentioned earlier, there might be someone who wants to be ironic and wear air monarchs or something. So that's why I said there's another opposition, another push and pull where we're trying to be like each other, but also different from each other. And why we're like this, to quote a Pearl Jam song, it's evolution. We learn from others because it's more efficient learning from your friends, your tribe, than it would be to try these things out on your own through costly time and error. That's why we learn from what we see from our friends. We learn what we see from social media now. And we learn what we see from reviews that from people we call experts. So I will talk about social media influencers and experts a little bit later. But this book, it calls this conformist distinction, where 
People want to feel that their tastes are unique, but feel anxiety when told that they are exactly like another person. Really, there's this optimal distinctiveness where you're part of the group, but you're a little bit set aside from the group and you don't want to go all the way to the end. Of course, you could be unique among your friend groups if all of a sudden you started wearing Rick Owens kiss heels all of a sudden. But really, most of the time, we want to be in a group where you belong, yet are apart. And this is where we'll find these kind of anti-fashion trends. When being different is too much work, we swing back the other way. And that's where we find things like normcore and corpcore and all that shit. And we're also seeing this now with panda dunks. Panda dunks are everywhere. Maybe now if I wore panda dunks, I will not be unique. I will be lumped in with the guys that Nice Kicks are now making fun of by posting a group photo where 10 people out of the 20 there are wearing panda dunks. So maybe I'll just shelve mine. And that's why in sneaker world, uh, the rare hype sneaker is the answer to all this. It does all this perfectly. Think of a Travis Lowe reverse mocha. It's nice aesthetically. It's familiar. It's Jordan 1. It's Travis Scott. It's rare, meaning it's not overexposed just because it's impossible to get, which makes it distinct because others don't have it. Basically checks all the boxes. Compared to, say, an Adidas Spazial shoe where... I know some of those shoes are really limited to under a thousand pairs, and I have some, they're super good quality. They have a good story, usually about, you know, European soccer culture or whatever, but it's not widely familiar. Maybe you didn't grow up with European soccer culture. You were not exposed to Premier League from a young age, so it's not nice to you, but some soccer fan from Hobbit Town, England, they're all over that shit. So that's why they call it conformist distinction. There's This quest to be distinct ironically makes it look like you're conforming. And that's why you'll also see sometimes on Twitter people be like, look at all these hype beasts wearing all the same shit. But as I've said, the only people that can criticize hype beasts for all wearing the same shit is if you're wearing Kmart brand stuff yourself. I mentioned before that we learn from our friends and we also learn from reviews from experts. I will talk about experts a little bit later, but first I wanted to talk about learning from sneaker reviews. These days it's either podcasts or YouTube reviews and really it's mostly YouTube reviews. So say you want an info on a shoe, it's comfort, it's sizing, the design details that are hard to see from official photos. Of course, the the usual stuff like the story of the shoe or even how to style, that's often a thing you'll see in a lot of these uh, YouTube videos. So when we're looking for information on a product, in the marketing world, products are either categorized as experience goods or search goods. A search good is a product that you can easily look up and evaluate even before you're buying it. Think of uh, a pressure washer or wiper blades or whatever. You can just look up a YouTube review, see everything you need to know, and then go buy it. For regular people, this is what sneakers are. You go to the mall, you go to Foot Locker, you look at the wall, you evaluate and buy, and that's it. You could find out all that you need to know about the fit, the quality, the style, right from that Foot Locker zebra himself. An experienced good is the opposite. It's a product where it's harder to evaluate how good it is in advance. You have to experience it yourself or go to someone who has experienced it. Think of uh, movie reviews, a food review, things like that. And this is where... For sneakerheads, sneakers are usually an experience good, even if it's a well-known sneaker. Like think of Jordan 1 OG High. 
If you've had that shoe, you know what it's like. They're all the same, but we will still want to see YouTube reviews for the yellow toe just because we want to know the quality of the leather. This is why on sneaker YouTube, those early pair videos are super important because those eat up all the early reviews and later reviews, no one cares because we already saw that first video from Seth Fowler or whoever, because he will go to GOAT or Stadium Goods and drop the 2K for the early pair of Chicago 1 Lost and Founds because he can easily make the money back being how big he is. You know, I mentioned movies and, you know, in movies we have Rotten Tomatoes and a thing like that doesn't really exist for sneakers. A site where we could go for both fan and expert opinions on sneakers on both, you know, new and old sneakers. It just doesn't exist. No one is leaving reviews for old, uh, Nike train render sneakers or something. But a site like this, say it exists, say there is a, such a thing as a Rotten Tomatoes for sneakers where it can also show you trends, it can show you top 10 weekly, what's been mentioned on shows. Uh, obviously, I'm not sure how popular this would be because it is still easier to watch or listen than it is to read these days. But if you could share your opinion publicly on a sneaker and others could see it as well, you'll see a herd behavior and effect as we see on Amazon or Yelp reviews. If something has a whole bunch of five-star reviews, someone is going to then leave a one-star review to balance it out. And then what happens is over time, people who leave reviews tend to be those that want to disagree with the previous opinions. This is called social influence bias. But in the sneaker world, we don't really have that. The closest we have are just YouTube sneaker reviews. But even those reviews themselves, they're affected by many things. That's why they have this quest to review fakes all of a sudden, because those are the ones that they could get. Or say they're clamoring for access, so they're not going to shit talk certain brands because they have a, a side deal or whatever that they want in the future. So bias is still in effect even in sneaker reviews. I wanted to talk about influencers and experts as well too, but at a higher level, I wanted to talk about influence a bit first that Often we think that there's only one direction when it comes to influence, that we learn from the rich, from the higher social class. Think of the polo heads that I've talked about in the Hater's Guide episode in New York. They were influenced by the style and luxury of Polo Ralph Lauren. So they emulated it. They bought all that stuff, the same as Dapper Dan and custom Louis Vuitton Air Force Ones. And this is called a prestige bias, where we learn from the rich, from the higher social class. But it often also works in reverse. Think of language. You'll often see the Real Housewives of New York start saying things that they heard from Twitter or from the streets or lingo that was common and used a couple of years ago. It's a, you know It bubbles up to the point where now it's on TV. Of course, think of luxury brands making skate shoes, Virgil making Louis Vuitton Air Force Ones, of course. But most of the time, we're influenced by people who talk about this shit a lot. That's who experts and influencers are. And I will use the term experts a bit here instead of influencers, because influencers sometimes, you know, you think of someone on TikTok who's peddling some diarrhea tea or something like that. Before I talk about this, I want a little disclaimer here. You know, I am not an expert on all sneakers. I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on everything. There's a lot of gaps in my knowledge. You know, there's lots of early days of Nike SBs that I don't know about at all. I never got into it. I basically took all of 2007 to 2012 off, just buying a couple sneakers a year in that time. And just the way that I grew up, you already knew that you weren't going to get something super expensive. So you just knew not to ask. So I never did. 
One thing that I've said on this show is I've said, I don't know. If I don't know something, I will usually say, I don't know, or I will say that I'm guessing and take my best guess. But other times when I do talk about things on this podcast, on this show, I'm pretty confident in it. And that's why I've got a good track record when it comes to takes on here. No bad takes. So back to this world of liking things. When you like something, it's hard to describe into words why you like something because feelings are very instinctive. So you got to come up with words to describe what you're seeing. And when it comes to food and wine and things like that, there's all kinds of descriptive words. Like for wine, you might say something is oaky or whatever. For sneakers, what are you going to say? It's got good lines. So as I mentioned before, we all just want to feel something. So how do you express it? When it comes to terminology in the sneaker world, they're pretty simple. It's something is either fire or trash, or it's a brick, which implies it's not good because it doesn't have any resale value. So this is all experts are. They're just often people who have the knowledge and have figured out a way to talk about it and talk about it often. But once they get to a certain level, what they often do is just tap dance around taste. It's often a mix of what they like and what they think people want to hear them talk about. Really, for an expert, it might be kind of taboo to call a sneaker bad. Think of uh, an expert on Ball Sack Sneakers podcast, and they say some shoe is really awful. And it's like, well, who the fuck are you? What about the bullshit you like? Because if an expert says a shoe sucks and people shouldn't wear it, that's called gatekeeping. So that's why I say often you'll see an expert tap dance around it and say, you know, uh, this is not even my argument, but one could say or shit like that. And of course, if you're an expert, if you were there, if you have the knowledge, you're going to resort to things like that were your favorites in your formative years. As I said before, the I was there mentality, but you have to do it without gatekeeping. You don't want to be seen as a gatekeeper, even though you would absolutely love to shamelessly be a gatekeeper. Oh, ALD is making New Balance boots now. That's crazy. I was into those before people even knew they existed. So an expert also wants to be ahead of the curve. So Hey, me and my friend who works at this big brand, we're totally into Asics Gel Keanu 14s right now. Oh, you're into Nike basketball? That's wild. I'm really into these Nike Air Bacon right now. There's this insecurity level when it comes to experts. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They might have anxiety about the gaps in knowledge. They might have anxiety about the perceived access that they have. They might even have anxiety about how they're aging out and not so gracefully. Most of the time, a sneaker can be well-liked by critics or, you know, a majority of the fans, but rarely by both. Are Jound New Balance or Jound Asics liked by the majority of sneakerheads? No. Are Panda Dunks liked by all critics? No. The sneakers that are actually liked by both are the ones that are either perfect or bland. Perfect sneakers, I'll say Amamonier 3, Chicago 1, or even the Off-White Presto or something like that. Bland sneakers, we already covered this, Air Force One, Stan Smith, Chuck Taylor. Experts are just people who've had the exposure and familiarity and took the time to figure out how to write about it or say it in video or say it in audio podcasts. You don't even have to be great at words, really. You just have to be good at connecting with people. So that's why I say don't worry about experts and shit like that. Really, anyone could do this. You just have to want to try. And that's why in the last episode, I was imploring you to go out there and create original content. So experts are the people making the sneaker of the year list. They are often balancing what they themselves like and what they think people like this year. But they also mix in not only what sneakers that you might like, but ones that you should like. 
you should like the protection pack new balance because you know so and so did it of course the resale price shouldn't be a factor but of course it is if it backs it up but it doesn't always back it up so i'm not sure if people are still saying you should like the nina chanel apne 2s but even these lists there's bias that goes into them i would always laugh when complex would often include a recent jordan mainline silhouette the jordan 35 is in our top 20 if they did it, they'd get a call from Gentry Humphrey. You can't disrupt the lines of access. You can't bite the hand that feeds. The same with those complex con panels that they used to have with a sneaker of the year panel. It's the usual sneaker celebrities, people who own Terror Squad, Air Force Ones, and then look at the camera and say, where are your kicks, people? So you qualify for the panel if you can do that. I remember once they had uh, Alan Iverson on there. Bless his heart, but how much does he possibly know about sneakers? And what can he really say that's going to be interesting when he's got his deal with Reebok? The game was on once, and that guy's the biggest liar in the world. So what is he going to say? There's also a recency bias. Most of the best of the year lists, often sneakers that are released later in the year do better. And, you know, sneaker companies know this too, and often will release things later. Another thing is, not every sneaker is trying to be the best of the year. Some Reebok brain dead Club C is not trying to be sneaker of the year. It's just trying to be the weird art kid. Versus the Ama Manier 3, where... It's got everything to be the best sneaker of the year. But when it comes to judging a sneaker for these lists, we're not just judging it by the sneaker alone, we're also comparing it to all sneakers we've ever seen ever. So for every new sneaker that comes out, we're looking for what's better than different from the previous ones. This is called the direction of comparison effect in that the later are compared to the earlier, but the earlier don't have the benefit of being compared to the later as they're dropping at the time. One day I was watching some videos on YouTube and I played some 80s playlist and ZZ Top Sharp Dressed Man came on and this this is a very 80s video and I was watching this and I was like this was everything I ever wanted as a kid. Guitar riffs, hot women, hot rods. It basically had everything I've ever wanted. So things that I've liked have just changed over time. What you liked as a kid versus what you like now. And really what I'm talking about is about how our tastes change over time and how and why. Changing your mind takes real effort. Because it's so instinctual and quick when we like something and we have a gut feeling, it takes real effort to override that feeling. To like something, to like a sneaker, you obviously got to wear it or you got to see it in person or you got to see people wearing it or you got to see it win awards. And we know that taste will change in the future, but really we don't want to believe it. We really have a resistance to it. Everything I like now, I will like forever. That is a common fallacy that people will believe. This is actually called the end of history illusion. The Wikipedia description says, quote, an illusion in which individuals of all ages believe that they have experienced significant personal growth and changes in taste up to the present moment, but will not substantially grow or mature in the future. Despite recognizing that their perceptions have evolved, individuals predict that their perceptions will roughly remain the same in the future. We just can't predict our future preferences because of everything I've talked about in this podcast, really, because we always want something new. We want that novelty. You know, popularity of certain items shifts and changes over time through trends, and that kind of stuff is hard to predict. It's a lot of random copying. In the book, they give an example of breeds of dogs where 
I want to breed a dog just because someone I know got one just like it. So all of a sudden, that type of breed of dog will become popular for the next few years and then fall out of fashion. Same thing with baby names. Those go from traditional names to fashionable names and then back to traditional. I grew up knowing a lot of people named Jennifer, but that's not exactly a common name you'll hear these days for a little kid. Which brings us back to the Fila Disruptor. The popularity of that shoe really came out of nowhere. Who was wearing Fila the years before and who's really wearing Fila since? Eventually it got so popular that there was a lot of jokes and memes about it to the point where people have basically stopped wearing it because of that reason. There's also nothing else for that person to keep wearing it. There was no exposure, there's no familiarity, no nostalgia. It was easy enough to toss to the side. So these trends are hard to predict. They're just like rogue waves. And tastes change now because the internet lets you see what others are doing. More selection doesn't mean more shoes have a shot at being the best sneakers of the year. Not everything is trying to be the best of the year, as I said. In music, you'll see that the, the music charts are more concentrated than ever. We see what's popular. We see what's you know on the top charts on Spotify. We click and listen more. Compared to, say, the early days of radio where... People did not have access to real-time listening data. Some Beatles song that was popular was often only on the charts for a couple weeks, compared to, say, a weekend song now, which is on the top of the charts for months, it seems. In the sneaker world, you know, the charts are really just the market, the sneaker apps. What resale data shows us, it tells us what's moving, what people are buying, what people want to wear. Because we're just living in a world now where we're always online, who do you follow and who do you want to copy? Who do you trust that you'd want to copy them? We might see what others are influenced by and go in that direction. But if too many go in that direction, we want to go in a different direction. And all of this is easier to do than ever before. That's why I said it's like, it's like rogue waves. Something might come and go like the Fila Disruptor. Or there might be larger trends like the Foam Runner that comes out and changes everything. We just can't tell where the next one's going to be coming from, how big it will be, and how long it'll last. This has been a long episode. I hope you stuck with me. To wrap this all up, there's a lot of oppositions when it comes to liking things and our tastes and preferences. We want something simple. We want something complex. We might want a bland sneaker, or we might want the perfect sneaker. We want something new, but also something familiar. We want to be unique, but only something that is familiar to our group. And how we like things, all of it just depends on exposure and frequency. The more exposure you get to something, the greater chance you'll like it. It's just easier for our brains to process because our brains like fluency. And how you like, you can go wide, as I said, or you can go deep on something. You can like a lot of sneakers, a little bit. I might have 200 sneakers, of which 125 are dead stock right now. Or you can go deep where you have very few sneakers, but you wear them all. Or, you know, you only wear a single brand or a single silhouette. Whatever it is, taste is adaptable. We learn to like things based on how much we talk about it and how much our friends talk about it and which experts or influencers we let in. And we see through trends and how random it is with copying that these trends can end up feeling like rogue ways, where it's just hard to tell where something's going to come from. Tomorrow, Travis Scott might wear some Bo Jackson Air Trainer 3, and all of a sudden, that shoe is going to be trending, the prices of it would have gone up, and the people who have that sneaker will start posting photos of it. 
But right now, there's no way to know who or what or why things are going to happen. We have a general idea based on the past and what's currently hot, but the randomness of it is what's actually great about sneakers. The other thought I had is about how how dominant both the past and the future is when it comes to our thoughts and our preferences, especially with sneakers. We think about the past a lot, the Jordans that we like, the retros that we have, sneakers you couldn't get in high school or when you were younger, versus the future, what's dropping this year, what's leaked, the Chicago ones that are coming out. Everyone is already creating and reserving memories for having that shoe. It's like the best part of the buying the lotto ticket is the hour you spend thinking about what all you're going to buy with all your winnings, even though you won't win. Because really, in a way, our brains know that just thinking about these kind of rewards is similar brain activity to actually experiencing those rewards. And these Chicago ones, these these are grails for a lot of people. Grails are another example of both the past and the future. They're just items from the past that we're going to buy in the future. And this is all because in our minds, the past and the future last way longer than the present. Because what is right now? It's nothing. I'm talking into a microphone. But the past is everything that I remember. The future is everything that's going to be great. And as I mentioned, I see a lot of unhappy sneakerheads out there spending your time thinking about what you don't like or can't get instead of thinking about what you do like and what you can get. So let's not get hung up about everything that's not perfect because things can't be perfect. There's never going to be a perfect release. There's never going to be an optimal stock numbers. There's always going to be a boogeyman, whether it's bots or a reseller or a retail backdoor. We worry about if sneakers are dead. We make grand proclamations that sneakers are dead. Most of the time, it's just someone who's ungracefully getting out of sneakers. Meanwhile, there's someone down the street who's just getting into sneakers. Either way, do it gracefully. Don't be an idiot about it. Just don't forget about what got you excited about sneakers in the first place. You know, that bus meme, I've mentioned it before. There's a guy on the left who looks miserable and the guy on the right who's looking out the window. Are you the guy on the left looking at the mountain thinking about everything that sucks about sneakers? Or are you guy on the right just blissfully unaware? Be the guy on the right in that bus meme. If you're in your 20s, go create as many memories as you can because the number of memories you'll be able to recall when you're older are already dwindling and gonna reach their low point at 35. If you're older, go try something new. If normally you only deep dive into one thing, why don't you try something new? Go wide instead of deep. Or the opposite, if you like a lot of things, maybe it's time to pare that down and only like a few things and like them more. Either way, the one thing that everyone listening should do right now, no matter how old you are, is go fuck yourself.